Hello, welcome back. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Emily. We're the executive directors and co-founders of ATX TV. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This week and coming up through the end of 2021, we're releasing exclusive and original conversations from our Season 10 Festival that premiered in June 2021. Please enjoy this week's release and tune in both here and on youtube.com backslash ATXTV for even more TV goodness. Without further ado, here's this week's TV Campfire episode from Season 10 of ATX TV Festival. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Emily Gibson, co-founder of ATX TV. And on behalf of the whole team, we thank you for being here. This next panel is one that is near and dear to my heart because way before Kate and I started ATX, music was my obsession. Honestly, my dream was to be a teenage pop star, but unfortunately that dream was crushed the year I turned 20, just a short time ago. Also didn't help that I'm completely tone deaf. However, my love of music still remains strong and there's nothing I love more than when a character breaks into song, probably because I'm living vicariously through them and I have no problem singing along as loud as I can. I am in awe of these panelists and what they've created. They've all quickly become part of the mixtape I call my life. But before I break into song, because you really don't want to hear that, I'm going to bring out one of my favorite people, Dan Feinberg, to take the mic away from me. Thank you, Emily. We'd be happy to let you keep talking if you want to. <laughs> or singing. Do you want me to start singing? You really don't. I mean, honestly, desperately, but that'll be a different <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I'm going to let you take it away now. Excellent. Hello, everyone. I'm Dan Feinberg, Chief Television Critic for The Hollywood Reporter. As Emily said, welcome to ATX TV Festival 2021. Still virtual, but I'm sure you have queso in your own living room. It's a pleasure to be moderating this year's TV mixtape panel, which is full of some of the writers of the smartest, funniest, most emotional original songs on television. So you're not here to see me. Let's get to our panelists. Up first, Lauren Bouchard, creator, showrunner, and EP on Apple's Central Park and Fox's Bob's Burgers. Hello. Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, creator, showrunners, and EPs on The Other Two, which moves to HBO Max for its second season. Hello. Hi. Nita Mansour, the creator, writer, and director on Peacock's We Are Lady Parts. Hi. Jeff Richmond, composer and EP on Peacock's Girls 5 Eva. Hi. And Siddhartha Kosla, composer and songwriter on NBC's This Is Us. Hi. <laughs> Welcome, all of you. Um, lots of questions, lots of questions that are going to touch on each of what you guys do specifically, but throughout, if there's any question that isn't directed at you, but you know you have something to say from your own particular experience, please feel free to jump in, interrupt, piggyback, etc. No boundaries, no rules. Since it's Zoom, just chaos. <laughs> so up first, this is something I was thinking about last week when BJ Thomas died. He's of course familiar as the, the singer of Raindrops Keep Fallen on My Head. And anytime you mention that song, you can inevitably start a fight on Twitter about whether it's the greatest thing in cinema history and makes it a classic movie, or whether it's this strange discordant element that ruins the whole movie. But one way or the other, to me, it kind of points to how integral a good original song can be to a piece of film 
and television. So I guess my first question is, when you guys first heard the topic of this panel, when I mention original songs deployed in film and TV and no end credits cheating here, are there a moment or two that come to your mind as particularly good uses of songs? And while you guys are vamping and thinking of your answer, if anyone wants to weigh in on Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and whether it's a movie killer or a movie maker, I'm happy to hear it. So let's start with you, Jeff, because you're closest to me in the, uh, in the Zoom screen. Oh, that's cool. I thought in age too, I thought that's where we were going with that, but I'm, I'm glad, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, that song and that movie, that is a, a Burt Bacharach song. And I would just like to mention that uh, PJ Thomas, people were talking so much about him last week when he died. What a soulful voice. People like Elvis and Peter Noon, so many people talking about him. Um, and uh, But that particular song sat so well in that movie. Uh, and I can't quite figure out why it does, uh, but I think maybe it has something to do because you're embracing this other kind of of style and tonality with the backrack music that's underscoring and throughout the movie as well. And uh, I think that's uh, part of why it fits in so fits in so nicely. Um, and it just really uh, kind of kind of puts a uh, uh, a crystallized the point of. Uh, of a, of a moment in that movie. Wow, that was really all over the place, guys. I'm really, I'm glad I'm first out of the gate to talk about it. And how, and how about the first part, though? When you hear the topic of this panel, what is the sort of mashup of song and image that immediately jumps to your mind? Um, maybe The Graduate. Maybe uh, maybe Mike Nichols putting two of Paul Simon songs, uh, Simon and Guy and songs back to back and uh, embracing music so well in that movie, I think is one that always jumps out to me. Who wants to go next? I was thinking about The Graduate the other day and also um, Harold and Maude using the Cat Stevens songs. It's like that, that um, do we, is there a name for this sort of, that subgenre of movies that use one artist and use um, original songs, but it's not a musical? It's like album movies or something. Mm -hmm. It, it well, works for me. On Lauren, because it just made me think in the same the same period is uh, Cold Turkey and Randy Newman, um, the, his songs in that uh, I thought were are, are great. And hey, he's so young in that, and he's writing from such a specific, sad downer of a place. I also, when you asked this question, question I also immediately pictured um, that Amy Mann song that they all sing in Magnolia. Yes, Magnolia. Yeah. Because it's such a bizarre experience when you realize what's happening and you're like, is this going to work or be insane? And then it, it is both. Yeah. <laughs> it does work and it's insane, but I I always think about that. Oh, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. That's knocking on heaven's door, right? We were just listening yeah, to that. Yeah, with Bob Dylan songs. Yeah. I mean, you also I also think about um, when I saw the title for the panel, um, how as an audience member, most people in the audience don't know the difference between what's originally written for the picture and what's licensed. And so it's sort of also, I, I think then to that point, um, it just makes, you know, the challenge of an original song even that much greater, I think sometimes, because you have, it has to be able to hang with like the great songs that people are used to hearing. Like, um, for me, my childhood was defined by like these John Hughes movies um, that had great songs. That I've got my soundtrack, like what I used to listen to, is introduced by like introduced by John Hughes movies, like Thompson Twins, Simple Minds, those types of artists. But when you're watching something now, 
as an audience member, you don't know the difference between, most people don't know the difference between what's original Ford picture and not. So that's what I think of immediately. And, and that's an interesting challenge as a songwriter to make sure that whatever you're writing can hang, you know, it can, it can sort of live in that world. Yeah. Sarah, Anita, what answers do you guys have on this one? You know, I, my mind went to all the kind of Bollywood movies I was brought up on just because people breaking into song was something just happening all the time. So it was very much like, yes, I think this is why I'm writing all these songs, even though I thought I was being much cooler. You know, I, I think I remember, um, what was it? Big Lebowski, that the just dropped in dream sequence when, you know, he's, and I remember that, that whole dream sequence is musical interlude just happening. I was like, you can do that. And that being quite a big moment for me, I'm like, I think I like this weird, random, tangential, musical, fun world. Yeah. And Sarah? Uh, this is an original music, but it's sort of related to what we've been talking about, how as a comedy writer, those songs that become so inextricably linked to a visual that just hearing it can evoke the the parody of it, like the end of Say Anything or the end of The Breakfast Club, those, those songs now you can, you can score a, a comedic take on those and you instantly are transported. You instantly know what you're doing. And I think that's such a powerful use of music to, to be able to evoke a scene, even though you're not doing this, the same scene, you're doing a different take on it. Now, one of my answers to the question probably would have been the late great Adam Schlesinger's title song for that thing you do because it has this very particular need in that movie because it has to be believable as a one hit. Yeah. And if it doesn't, the movie doesn't exist. And yet it's completely and totally believable as that thing. And I'm sort of curious for all of you guys, when you're building songs within your shows, what are the challenges of making a situationally believable? song, whether it's a song that would make a teenage kid into a YouTube sensation, a song that a punk band might make up on the spot, a girls group from the 90s, one hit. How do you find the way to make the song actually be believable within the confines of the show? Mm -hmm. Well, for our show, which is the Go first example. Sorry, oh, you're fine. Okay. For our show, which is the first example you gave, um, we literally hired the person who makes those songs in real life. <laughs> <laughs> um, we worked with a songwriter named Leland who write, has written for pop stars like Selena Gomez and Troy Sivan. And so he just came with a sound that was already so authentic. Cause like what Sid was saying, we were, we really wanted, even though our show is a comedy, we really wanted our audience to believe that this kid has it. And the songs really had to hang <laughs> with the real songs that had hit. Cause otherwise you're just like, what, this is all, Oh, this is a comedy show versus being like, oh, I should buy this kid's album. Yeah. Um, and so we worked with a real songwriter and that helped lend so much legitimacy because he just was doing what he had already done and proven to be successful at and is excellent at what he does. And then we gave her like dumb little lyrics. <laughs> I know. Also, we, we would try to keep ourselves in check too, even when writing lyrics, where we would try to make sure that we were like, hopefully it was funny, but we weren't writing jokes. We wanted to pretend that we were the little kid writing the song or we were the music producers writing the song for this boy. And it had to hold up under that and not seem like it was a list of jokes that we as the writers were writing, if that makes sense. So that the idea is funny, hopefully, but that the lyrics feel genuine. I, I think also to that point about sort of 
hiring the right people to be involved. So I'm a composer so, and, um, and, I, and I write score and my background is, you know, I, I, for most of my career was being the singer songwriter of a band. So um, I get hired on projects to score and to also write the original songs. Um, and though writing original songs is sort of like secondhand to me, it's sort of like how I was raised. It's like how I, it's what I know better than score in many ways. Um, there are times though, too, where like I need to bring in the right co-writers to write something with me too. So on, um, on this is us, for example, um, we've had a few sort of pretty big co-writes that I've had to uh, a few people that I brought in to co-write with me. Uh, one of them was like a one of them was like a Motown song that I had to write that had to have been like a felt like a Stax Records hit from the you know from the seventies. Um, so I brought someone, a friend of mine who's a great singer songwriter, to write it with me, who himself like sounds like Otis Redding when he sings. You know, so uh, it's that research is sort of really important, and I and I feel like. Um, in this sort of elevated film and in this elevated um, television world we live in right now um, with so much great content, everyone has to sort of like step up their game a little bit. And so you kind of need to like bring in the right people to work on certain um, songs and projects. Um, and um, I collaborate a lot with uh, Taylor Goldsmith, who's a songwriter for the band Dawes. And he and I write a bunch of stuff for This Is Us as well together. So that also helps sort of like you know, he's able to bring in sort of this like lyrical, he's brilliant lyrically, and I'm able to like tap into that with my melodic sense and we can work together. Um, and just generally too, if, in terms of the challenge of what it is, I think it's like, it's also the resources that the studio can provide you to make that happen. Like, so there's times where I want, I want, I recorded something to quarter inch tape, you know, I was like, we have to go analog. <laughs> And, and the studio was like, really? And I was like, yeah, because I was like, this has to take place in the 70s. You want it to feel and sound like it. So obviously there's plugins that can do it, but sometimes it's fun to sort of fully immerse yourself into it. <laughs> now, I want to follow up on that quickly. It's one thing to say it's fun to do that, but it's another thing <laughs> to actually convince someone to pony up the dough. How much selling <laughs> did you have to do to convince the studio to let you do that? Um, I, was, I think when they heard the song, they heard the demo of the song and they felt like this could actually be like a, a big song from that era. I think there's also a story behind it too, that people enjoy being able to say that, Hey, we got our composer or songwriter to, they recorded on tape. How cool is that? And you're right. It's a huge waste of money in most people's eyes. Um, and, but when I got a band in the room performing live um, and knocking out the instrumental for the song in 30 minutes, and we saved four hours of studio time and did it old school, <laughs> and the, then you made up for the cost of tape. And, and that was the end of the first season, right? So presumably the network and studio already knew that they had a hit on their hand. Do you think that sort of was probably the biggest oh. thing? Oh of yeah, that wouldn't have happened on another show. I've worked, most shows I work on, that would never have happened. So that, yeah, they, were, they, they gave us a little more latitude there, for sure. That's a great point. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Jeff, Laura, Anita, on the believability question, how do you write a song that sounds like it actually fits with the people in the show singing it? I would jump in and say the same thing as everybody else and said, said that this was a particular project where we, uh, I wanted to bring in additional people to work because I mean, I had, you know, I'm creating something where Sarah Borales and her team's around. I was like, oh, I want to be sure that we have everything we need to support these people in the music business as well. So, uh, and we were also dealing in the time of COVID and trying to record in that. So I wanted to be sure 
I had somebody that we had their own studio and a situation set up where we could bring people in it's very simply and very clean and take care of all our recording and stuff. But, uh, you know, all these years of writing comedy songs for all these television shows that I've been writing for, this was the one where I went in and go, this is the one that's going to have to have some uh, verisimilitude and exactly how it's going to sound sonically. So I wanted to be sure that I had a team. Hanan Rubenstein is the guy that I, additional arranger that I brought in. So when I would knock out these demos, he would come in and with his particular uh, knowledge and add just the right amount. What is the right synthesizer for this? And what's the right uh, drum beat for this? And how this is all going to come together. So... Yeah, trying to get that team together that's going to really be able to create that sound that sounds authentic. Love too. You have to love the 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 genre that you're doing. I think if you like if you spoof from the point of view of of like you're condescending to it, that can be funny, but it's not going to be believable. It's going to like everyone's saying, it's going to sound like a bit and that's fine if that's what you're going for. But if you want it to be a little more um, textured and and um, sit in the world, then I think you have to love it. The uh, I found this the hard way on Bob's because on Bob's Burgers, we have a fake boy band. And I will confess right now, just because of my age and my, you know, the path I took, I have no love for boy bands. I never gave a single shit about any boy band at, at all. And, uh, you know, I lived through a bunch of them, but I, they were, it was just background noise to me, but it was interesting. The Bob's writers loved those bands. Mm -hmm. So they were, I was like, okay, let's pitch on lyrics. Let's pitch on jokes here. They were um, coming from a deep well of knowledge that allowed for us to have jokes, but also um, some deep kind of secret respect. I didn't feel it, <laughs> but they did. Um, so I, uh, I, I guess I would say that was the secret there. And it didn't even have to come from me in that case. Uh, I stepped away. I don't write, I didn't write any of that music cause I couldn't have. Um, and the Bob's writers knew exactly what to do and recorded all the demos. Nina. Um, yeah. I think, you know, with we are lady parts, it's my first show that I've kind of created um, and, you know, and it is kind of drawn from a personal place. So when I was thinking of the music for it, it was really just drawn from music I love. So, you know, punk music was something that I sort of loved growing up. And in terms of the people I worked with, it was my siblings because those, <laughs> they're the people I made music with growing up. So it was very much like, I didn't really think about like, is this believable? Oh, it's sort of like, I just got my siblings together. Cause even when I was pitching the show, I was like, how can I make this the most fun? And that would be with writing music with my brother and sister and my brother-in-law. I am, I am curious how frequently you find a kernel in a title and then you're like, I've just got to write the song out of that, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, always, actually. I feel like with me, the title kind of comes, I think there was only one of the original songs where the song came and then the title came after and that actually is the worst title. Um, but yeah. It's always like, is there a funny joke in a kind of pithy, you know, with Bashir with a good beard, I was sort of thinking about Becky with the good hair, the Beyonce lyric. I'm like, oh, it's funny. And and that sort of came. And then I got had that title. And then as I was writing the script, I kind of found a way to sort of weave it into the story as well. So it was quite a nice um, sort of play, sort of, you know, thing where I came up with the title, then I wrote the script and then I wrote the song. It was all a bit all over the place. Um, but 
Yeah. And then, you know, oftentimes I would send my kind of funny joke ideas to my sister who lyrically is, she's much, you know, so she goes quite on a political rant and is writing all this really hard hitting stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is too serious now. So trying to insert jokes and kind of lighten it up, but keep a bit of that edge. Um, so it's, so it's that back and forth, but absolutely like, I'm like catchy title first and then hopefully the song works. <laughs> How about the rest of you? Um, for Sarah and I in the first season of the other two, we, we started by wanting to like track the growth and progression of this like young pop star. So we wanted each new song to kind of be a different level of his fame. So his first song he wrote himself, literally no one helped him except for maybe like kids at school. It's called I Want to Marry You at Recess. The writing is terrible. So we really wanted to show that like there was no involvement. You know, then the second song, producers are starting to get involved. It's a little slicker, but you can still see the little boy in it. The third song is just like robots made it. He he read the lyrics on the day. You know, he had, he doesn't even know what this is. So it was important for us to kind of like help. We wanted just um yeah, we wanted them to be all different from each other and show that he was getting more and more famous. And then also we always asked ourselves, um, how could the songs be important to our story? Like the our show isn't about this little boy, it's about his two older struggling siblings. So we always went into each song by being um asking ourselves, how could this song best exacerbate? one of his older siblings lives. So, you know, one of our older, one of the older siblings is, is gay and he's out, but he's still struggling with his sexuality. You know, he's one of those people who thinks he's come out and so he's done, but he still has a bunch of hangups and self-hatiness. And his little brother writes a song all about how it's called My Brother's Gay and That's Okay. And it's just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of photos of his gay brother and just basically outs him to the United States of America. So like, Oh, we, we, yeah, we wanted each song to be new and feel different from the one before it, but we always were like, how can this, how can this mess with one of his siblings so that it wasn't just a random song, but it helped propel story too. Yeah. We do the same as Nita though, title first. Oh yeah, then, title first. Title first, then late, way later you'd be like, okay, now I have to write this stupid song. I know, but for My Brother's Day and That's Okay, we felt like producers interviewed him and asked him about his brother. <laughs> And he said, I don't know, my brother's gay and that's okay. And they were like, that's enough. That's what it's called. We'll do that. There was no more grace to it. There was no more art behind it. They were like, we'll use that exact phrase. That's what it's called. Let's go. <laughs> well, the title is often the hook of a song anyway. So that's always a good Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you give a good title. I think when working with Meredith on those, on the shows, Meredith Scardino, who's the creator, and she did all, you know, basically all the lyrics. And she, unlike Chris and Sarah, she was going for comedy lyrics. She was mm -hmm. going for the throat. And those are always fun because those are the kind of songs that I'm also used to being playing around with. But um, Chris, I lost the thread of my, of the, of the, because your answer was so good and how you progressed the writing throughout the season. I thought that was interesting. So I, I kind of lost a little thread there, but uh, take her songs and figure out what style is what you want to do and then kind of nail that together from the 1990s and from this uh, Power Girl stuff. So, and it sounded like it was also kind of written and manipulated by the producers and men in the music industry at the time. And we knew that in the beginning of the season that those songs could be that way and they could be a little funnier that way and they could be a little, you know, inappropriate and misogynistic and the music could be doing whatever it needed to do to sound like it should sound. But as the characters in the, in the series, you know, when uh, Sarah Bareilles as Dawn begins to start wanting to find her own voice in writing, 
we knew that it would be nice for Sarah, because we have this beautiful talent on, on hand, to also maybe pick up a song or two towards the end of the season uh, so that you felt, oh, this is somebody else writing, this is somebody else writing, and it's funny. Uh, now we're going to do a collaboration, Sarah and I, and it's going to sound like somewhere in the middle. And by the time we get to the end of the season, we have this big thing, Four Stars, which is kind of the song that's arcing, you know, the second half of the season. It's not jokey anymore. It's just a straight up, honest pop hit song. Um, uh, that's just kind of the arc of how the story writing overview went for Girls Five Ever anyway. Well, Sid, is your process different? Because presumably they kind of let you know when they need a song. There have been several musical moments throughout the series, but do they say, we're going to have a song that we need in this episode five in the future. Here's what we needed to accomplish. Go. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, so um, so Dan Fogelman, who's the creator of, of This Is Us, um, he and I, we've known each other since we were 17 years old. Um, so we've known each other longer than we haven't. Um, so there's a, <clears throat> there's a shorthand between the two of us. And, um, and he'll oftentimes let me know, even before they're in the room with the writers, to say, hey, man, like in you know, the start of season four or season three, um, uh, we're going to need, we're going to need a song for um, our, um, our, for young Jack in the future, for example. Um, he's going to, he's a pop star um, 30 years into the future. So start thinking about how you're going to write a hit song that comes out 30 years from now, you know? Um, and our process, because we've known each other so long, it's like, you know, there's a, um, the shorthand really is Dan just sort of like, um, you know, letting me figure it out. And if I ask him for sort of any feedback or advice, he'll just make fun of me or say something just like, he'll, he'll just say something that will like bring us back to freshman year in college or something. Like there's really so little feedback. It's just, I'll ask him a question and his response will be like, I don't know, just, can you figure it out? You know, <laughs> so um, a lot of it is that. So it kind of empowers me to sort of figure it out on my own. Um, I know on that show specifically, the challenge is on one end, on one side, you have to sort of, you have to serve the story, right? And write this song that is believable enough where it doesn't take a viewer out, um, but it also has to be what it was meant to be, this hit song 30 years into the future. But, are, but you're also satisfying sort of like the, the musical um, uh, need that Dan, the showrunner, has for his own personal taste. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a weird thing. You have to like, so I know that he likes a good earworm. Like he needs a hook always. He's, he could care less about the lyric and he's more about the hook. And so I know that he's going to like something that I give him if it's got, if the hook is better than the lyric, you know, um, if the melody is. So, so I know that, you know, when you know the person you're working with, you also understand what makes them like something. So there's two challenges, right? What's the audience going to believe and what's the showrunner going to like? Now, the song that you're referring to is Memorized, which was in the season four premiere. A yes. And I would like to hear how you theorized the evolution of pop music over the next 30 years yeah. and that particular song into it. <laughs> um, it goes, I, 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 I think I overanalyzed it at one point. I was really, like, my assistant and I were like, you know, like I have, a, my, I have an assistant that he's like, he's a, he's a pop producer um, and he's also half my age. Which, which was like the right person to not to be ageist, but the right person to bring in because I needed someone much younger than me who um, could really understand 
where pop music was living today. Because in my analysis, I was like, oh, music is cyclical. Like 30 years from now, music is going to sound like it sounds like today, you know, was our thinking. Um, it's kind of been the way I've always like, like, I'm still waiting for like, you know, bands that sound like Radiohead to start coming out now, like what Radiohead used to sell like when they came out. Um, so, um, so I think in my analysis, it was like, okay, music is cyclical. Um, and then what it really eventually brought me back to was, is it really cyclical or is it that a good melody can always stand the test of time? And, um, and we start there. So I picked up my guitar and I was like, Oh, in the quiet way you caught my eye. It was just me on my guitar. Um, and, um, and, and I was like, Dan, do you like that melody in that? Do you like that? And he was like, I love that. And he's like, now, he's like, now sort of make it sound like it's going to come out 30 years from now. And so my Alan, my assistant and I got together and I had him. I was like, I stayed out of it. I was like, here's the song. I was like, produce it like you would a song that's coming out today. And that's what he did. And that's what stuck. So we kind of, we kept it. That was our philosophy. Now, Lauren, your shows have always used musical elements extensively, but Central Park is different because it's a straight up musical. Um, how early in the process did you realize you guys wanted to approach the series as a musical? And how many of the challenges of going from a song or two a week on Bob's Burgers to three or four full-scale musical numbers, how many of those challenges did you anticipate? And how many sort of knocked you flat when you were in the process trying to do it? I think it's fair to say that if we had known what we were signing up for, we wouldn't have done it. It was so naive of us. It was so staggeringly stupid and arrogant that we thought we could pull this off. It was a, yeah, we were really high on our, on ourselves, I guess, thinking that we somehow had figured out musicals. We, we weren't making a musical and, 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 you know, we love music on Buzz. We love it. And we love writing songs and we've had musicals within an episode of Bob. So we've had the characters write a musical, but even with that, um, yeah, we weren't prepared. And, 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 and it's funny because Nora Smith, who I wanted to be on here with me today, she couldn't make it, but she, we write uh, a lot of music together and we went into Central Park together. We thought eyes wide open and she's the musical fan of the two of us. She's knows more musicals, um, you know, loved more musicals. I, I have my favorites, but I'm not that, that kid who knew, uh, knew all the shows. She was closer to that, but still, uh, I think we just didn't know. And um, I, I guess, yeah, we pretty quickly um, realized we could, the skills that you need to to bang out a funny song or a silly song that's in maybe perhaps in the voice of your silly comedy um, is different than the skills you need to write a capital M musical. We were, we were uh, you know, backpedaling quickly away from the, 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 the huge task um but josh gad is you know is of that world and knew uh just who to reach out to and so the songwriting team that came in first uh was samson and anderson they're incredible and they do that um and they gave us as writers a speech they gave us a a, a handout a two you know two pager about what a musical is and and the different kinds of songs and musicals and the different functions <laughs> they songs have in the story and it was it was all eye-opening and again never would have done it uh never would have signed up for that kind of uh 
education by fire. I, I would have taken two years off or more and tried to learn that stuff before we started production, but we just didn't know. Well, I'm, I'm curious because obviously, you know, it, Lauren has some of these fantastic Broadway singers in his cast. So you can build them around. Jeff, when you have a cast that's kind of a mix, you obviously have Renee who, who can do anything. You have Sarah who, you know, she can sing a little bit. And then you have actors who can sing, but they were cast because they were funny. What is your process of looking at who you're writing for and saying, this is what they can do. This is what they can't do. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, that Well, first of all, because we had Sarah and Renee, I just kind of knew we could almost do anything because as opposed to doing anything live, you know, we're going to be able to sweeten things as we go along. And I have Sarah and Renee who can do a, an, an enormous amount of sweetening. But what I learned along the way was that Busy Phillips is, is, is quite an accomplished singer. She sounds fine mixed in there. And I've known Paula Pell for 25 years. I knew that she would sing and, uh, and, and she could carry a tune as well. I, but, um, I had some ringers sitting in there, so I knew I could almost pull off any anything vocally I could do. But I could, I knew I was giving, you know, to be, you know, to be this much geeky, not really that much geeky. I said, well, I'll give Sarah the the, the harder parts, and I'll give her the lead, and then I'll have I'll have Busy double her because I know that Busy likes to follow along, much like her character in the in the thing, and they'll they'll do that, and I'll give Renee, I'll anything that busts out really high and and and, and needs to, a riff, I'll do that, and I'll put Paul on the bottom. And then, uh, and I also knew that I had Erica Henningsen and Ashley Park, who were in Mean Girls. They were also in a, you know, a, a quite a bit of this music as well. Uh, and I kind of knew where they would fit in as well. But, uh, and then one other little thing real quick. Uh, no, wait, this is good, but I'll wait. <laughs> I'll bring it back around. Well, I want to hear from, from Chris and Sarah, when you were casting uh, Case, how much did you know he could do and how much have Chase Dreams' songs evolved based on what his actual capacities are and how they've changed as a singer? As he went through puberty before Maybe. our guys. <laughs> I mean, we found him on TikTok. It was called Musical.ly back then, but um, it became TikTok and he was like a little TikTok boy singer. And so we knew that he could sing and had that kind of perfect vocal quality that you're looking for in like a in an upcoming little pop star um but i think that one of the challenges we had with him was in the finale of our first season he performs live at the vmas and decides to do like a stripped down version of his his like very processed pop song and that reveals the true quality of his voice which is not great and so having to coach this sweet kid and be like we're gonna make your voice sound so like bad but it's not about you like trying to coach him as a 16 year old to sing badly and then put that out on tv in front of everyone and be like this is his voice um was was difficult to to coordinate but he's such a good sport he was up for anything but that was the interesting thing about casting him is we saw so many kids and a lot of kids who were incredible singers and even had like a theater background and had been on broadway but the way those teens yeah. sang is different than the way a pop kid sings even you know they're vocally but also the way they move the way that they know they look cool or the way they it's just like a different being and so we kind of wanted to just cast the equivalent where we were sort of like the his producers you know where we were like in the show chase dreams is plucked up by producers and then like told to do all these things and they manipulate his voice and they make him what he is and we were sort of playing that same role we were like this is the exact you aren't like classically trained but you have a good voice but it's a little raw because 
you just grew up in Colorado and you're, you know, you're not a professional, but you have enough raw talent that we can take it. And I think it will feel like a, that it'll feel comparable to what we're looking to do in the show. Um, but yeah, we also like really lucked out with him because he's really, really talented. He's like talented and also gets the joke, if that makes sense. Like he genuinely is good, but also gets what we're parodying. So it was a helpful one, two punch with him. And Nita, you had to cast an entire punk group. What was the talent level that you were looking for from your actors and how high was musicality on your priority list? It was high. Um, it was very high. It was a long, a long process, um, very rigorous. You know, it was not only the landing the comedy, I also, you know, really wanted the actors to be able to play the instruments of their punk band. Um, and, and, you know, part of the audition process was a sort of a session with my brother who would kind of quickly teach them a bit of guitar, like just sort of chord shapes and just, and also just to, and a bit of the lyrics of some of the songs. And there was like a, so a performance element as well as like doing the scenes. And, you know, one of the things that we found was a lot of the actors couldn't, you know, either they would be really cool and edgy and could do the punk thing, but then couldn't do the comedy thing and were totally unmusical. And you can get away with being kind of unmusical doing punk. You can be a bit, just like a bit rubbish. Um, but then I wanted the band to be kind of good, you know, and so, it was just really long and finding, I think one of the, the hardest parts for me to cast was the character of, of Syrah, who's sort of the lead singer, because even though she's doing these comedy songs, it's like believing that she's like a front woman and a punk front woman and can sound like a lot of the actors who are coming in, who sort of trained, clearly trained in sort of musical theater, couldn't sing slightly out of tune. And it was like, you know, I was just, just like loosen up, loosen up, and I was trying to get them to not sing perfectly. And it, that was such a, a big thing. Um, but yeah, you know, there was there was a kind of musical ed- element to the audition. So it took a long time for the cast to come together. Um, you know, they had a really long rehearsal period with the songs to really sort of practice them, rehearse them. So by the end, they could sort of play it, play them without the backing track. And they'd sort of become a band before we'd even started shooting, which just really lent itself to the kind of authentic feel of them just you know, because they were like day in, day out, just coming together, rehearsing the instruments. And they almost became obsessed with actually being able to play the instruments and sing. So all the sort of vocals that you hear are sort of always live vocals. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, a sort of a long process. And and Sid, one of your This Is Us songs was written for Mandy Moore, who obviously people know as a, as a singer. And you guys obviously have a good sense of her voice and have used it on the show. But you also wrote one song that ended up being sung by Brian Tyree Henry, who's Broadway trained and all of that. And another one by uh, Blake Stadnick, who also is a singer. How often do you have any sense of who you're writing for? And does that matter in your process, who, whose voice is going to take it on? Um, I think it absolutely matters. I remember when we um, when we wrote that song for Brian Tyree Henry, um, season one, that was the sole song um, that we needed to write. And I think he was cast, if I remember, um, without sort of any audition for singing. Like he didn't he did not sing as part of his audition. They hired him because he's Brian Tyree Henry, and he's like one of the greatest actors of our generation. Um, and and when the task was to write something that like, you know, you know, those singers like an Otis Redding type of singer um, or, you know, um, Teddy Pendergrass or any of those types of like amazing soul singers, like they could sing their asses off. Like, and so I was incredibly nervous. I remember not knowing what Brian's ability was going to be. I didn't know. And so 
I kind of like we had I'd, I'd even floated the idea with this is before I even had known how well he could sing in my head. I was thinking I was like, OK, so are we going to have Brian just lip sync to someone else, you know, but um, or is Brian going to actually sing this? And um, and when I spoke to the directors, they were like, no, no, Brian is going to sing this. Um, and so I spent a good amount of time with Brian just to try to understand his voice. Um, he did come from like a theater, like a musical background, um, but he didn't sing in that sort of like musical sort of way, like music, like, you know, the musical sort of sound. Um, he had this sort of like, he had this sort of like raw, visceral kind of energy to him. Um, you could see it in his acting. And when I heard him actually sing, it was like raw and powerful. So he nailed that. Like it was very easy to do that. Um, with Mandy, obviously Mandy's already an artist in her own right, you know, before This Is Us. And um, and so when so Taylor, her husband and I actually wrote, um, Taylor is married to Mandy. Her husband and I wrote that song together for her to sing. That was really cool because... Um, you know, A, they could practice at home together. So it was like, I knew it was going to be awesome. And it's Mandy, who's just a phenomenal singer. So that was easy. With Blake, Blake, um, full-on musical theater background. So when we came in, um, when I worked with him, I just had to have him basically forget everything that he had ever learned um, in musical theater because he had to be this like rock star. And, um, and I was like, you have to be looser. You have to be looser. And we worked through a lot of it. And and he's and with good actors, good actors are chameleons, right? They can also they can change what they look like as much as they can change what they sound like as much as they can change their accent. Um, and he did that really, really well. So, um, you know, for me, too, I'm just the songs that I have to, have, I've had to write on the show have been sort of like songs that feel like they're of the era. They're in there. They're in the show. Um, and so they cannot be anything close to musical at all <laughs> um and everyone's very sort of like you know sensitive to it dan and the directors always are like it can't sound like what he sounds like <laughs> so i'm like okay so we work on it i want to talk a bit about the the business side of this when you guys say we want to do a musical we want there to be songs or we want to do shows with mute songs how quickly does someone say okay here's what we can do to get those songs out there like when in the conversation does spotify come into it does apple music come into it are there still cds today i have no clue if anyone makes cds but how <laughs> but when does someone begin having the conversation okay here is something we can do with these songs to use it as a promotional or business device well i can speak to girls this year because you know all these years we've been writing television shows that had a lot of songs and people different people singing and we never even thought about thought twice oh we should put a soundtrack out even though everybody else had done it but when we started girls i remember from the very beginning i said you know sarah's in this renee's in this we should be th thinking about how we're going to use full-length songs in the future and where is that real estate going to be for that and uh but it was really late in the game when we decided that we could actually use the last frontier where you can get music into these streaming platforms which is in credits in credits is the is where is where it's kind of at in a lot of ways now because that's the part you can't get a full song into an episode but you have this section at the end where the credits are going to roll and you have 90 seconds and once we decided that we could write full-length songs that would go in then then we knew we'd be able to bank enough full-length songs that we could then approach uh the, the producers at you know, net at uh, at peacock 
about what our next steps would be. And then because of Sarah, that means there's an embrace between her label, which is Epic, on and on and on. But uh, ours was early on, but it really didn't take effect until right towards the end. And then it was just a race to try to get it all done. And we were recording in post in ADR sessions to make full length songs, which was crazy. But I, I know, you know, like I know Lauren, you guys do a lot of singing in ADR sessions. You don't have thing. I, and I'm sure everybody else does that too, but. We had the, you know, we had a similar situation. We, nobody was interested in putting out our record except us. We were banking all these little pieces of music. And then finally we, we, Sub Pop nicely, you know, offered to put it out. I'm sure it's a loss leader for them, but it was nice to have it be a real record label. And we were like, oh, the songs are all 30 seconds long. Yeah. It's and they were like, oh, do you want to do full length versions? And we were like, it's, it, there are just too many of them. It, it'll be so hard. We could do with two. And, and so we had uh, this ridiculous album. God bless anyone for buying it. I, I mean, we cared about it so much. We, we talked it up. We pushed to make it. And then, yeah, you have to buy a record full of 30 second long <laughs> songs. Yeah. And I, I just, I know everybody else gets a turn. I was just going to say, and we were doing that same thing where we were taking our 30 second, 15, 18 second songs that were embedded within the episodes and saying, well, which one? All right, which this one's at the at the end of this episode. There's a small we'll we'll we'll, we'll fan this out and writing those towards the end after you've already kind of set it up is a tricky reverse engineer process. So Lauren, you made the right decision to keep them thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah, it was made for us. <laughs> one else, what is the I think point? on the yeah on the on the I mean the business side of uh, at least in in my experience, you know the. Um, we can't give enough credit to our music supervisors who are, you know, integral to the process. You know, I've, I've, I work a lot with our music supervisors, um, um, you know, and, and so there we, we should always remember how I'm, I'm grateful to them. They, they do so much amazing work. Um, and then on the, in terms of releasing music and getting it out there, um, there's, I mean, on This Is Us, we do a we do we do like a score soundtrack, and then sometimes the original songs end up on there. But again, like I don't know, like how many people are actually buying it or even getting it. I think it's a total like it's 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 these are these soft releases that just get put on, just like I can go on TuneCore and release something tomorrow. Um, so um, I, I don't know really how much, without having sort of any vinyl printed or anything else, like how much anyone is really making off of any of this but um <laughs> especially since like you can just go on youtube and just like listen to every piece of music you want to listen to straight through and you know um but yes music supervisors key in that process too nita chris and sarah um we had the idea of doing a spotify playlist like pretty late in the game considering we're doing a music show I you know it was just produced at like the end of last few weeks of post and we're like shouldn't we should really we should really do something with these songs so we made a Spotify playlist which was fun because actually in the in the episodes we had to cut out you know sometimes 30 seconds of a song I was really not thinking about the fact that I've got a whole show around the song so I'd written quite a lot of song um which I've now learned was probably too much considering I, you know, they were, we were having to kind of meet 24 minute episodes for channel four. So we were quite short. So it was nice to be able to like bulk up the song with a cool guitar solo we had to cut. Um, and, and we have some really cool covers that we got cleared. So I'm like, Oh, they should live. Um, so that's been really fun. And it's nice to see since the, the show has been out here that people have kind of gone 
to the Spotify playlist to kind of keep listening to the stuff. So that's been, that's been nice. And Chris and Sarah, is there a Chase Dreams album coming out that you guys can put together or not? We released our four songs and we've made billions of dollars off of them. It's been unreal. It's been so fun to make all the money. No, we we did the same thing. I think it's similar to Lauren where me and Sarah were like, okay, we're going to release an album. This is what we're going to do. And I think just everyone very politely was probably on emails without us being like, this is clearly important to them. Let's just make this Apple iTunes thing for them. So I think legally a little playlist exists somewhere just so for our parents just so we would go to bed but i don't think um yeah and then chris and chris you bought that chris you bought that painting behind you from that royalty money right just, oh yes that's beautiful <laughs> no this little one the one way yeah i got that doorknob yeah. <laughs> door, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah we only had like four full songs you know so like what some other people were saying too it wasn't quite enough to do a full thing but when we were at SNL, we wrote like 10 songs while we were at SNL. And we made, when you had a, a friend make little CDs for us, and that was thrilling to us. So that was, even then, we were like, yeah, even then we were dropping hands. We were like, God, someone should really turn this over. Uh, what do we do with all these songs, I guess? <laughs> It's fun when they live uh, away from the show. I do like that a lot. There's something, you know, what is it? Decontextualizing it, or I don't know if that's correct, but it's like you, the song exists in the show and it makes some sort of sense there. And maybe, per, you know, in success, it's appreciated by the fans in that moment. And then you, you kind of wonder, like, could it live by itself a little <laughs> bit? You know, can <clears throat> you put a cover on and make it an album or a, or a 45 or whatever. And there is, some, and the vinyl of it all is really interesting. You're like, this is going to be on a real record. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be, I could put it on my record player. It almost feels dirty, but there is like oh, something yeah. thrilling about it too. I know we were like, we really drank our own Kool-Aid. We wrote a song with Blake Shelton at SNL and we loved it. And it, he was so good. And it was so funny to us. And we were like, he's going to sing it at, his concerts like this is gonna be a thing and then the silence was deafening <laughs> we, know, we were like i know it won't happen but he couldn't make this for the rest of his life and we only said i know it won't happen to protect ourselves because we really did think it would happen and it um it did not happen one time i mean i thought i thought for sure that justin timberlake would be opening his shows with dick in a box like i thought for sure why not that wasn't <laughs> us but i agree <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like if he didn't do that, no one's going to do it. <laughs> that is <SNL, laughs> right. When you're writing at SNL, and a new somebody new is coming in every week, and you're writing a song for them, that is a particular uh, stress-filled and uh, and fulfilling thing. And it is true; it is so ethereal. <laughs> then they're gone. I know. <laughs> you worked, you know, and you did this thing, and then Jack Black sang, and it's gone. So. He never <laughs> thinks about you again for the rest of the days, and then he passes away. <laughs> Happy birthday, nephew. <laughs> excellent well there's so much more to talk about but we're going to save some stuff for next year's atx tv festival tv mixtape panel when we'll all be in austin so thank you everyone for watching and thanks so much to lauren chris and sarah nita jeff and sid thank you all thank, thank you you're welcome thank you guys nice meeting you all thank you for listening to atx tv's original series the tv campfire to watch these panels and more, please visit youtube.com backslash ATX TV. For details on the festival, go to atxfestival.com. And information on our membership program can be found at atxfestival.com backslash membership. Follow us at ATX Festival on all social media. 
As always, please rate and review. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening, and a simple click or brief comment can help us grow and have other TV lovers like yourselves find us. Feels like enough information, right? Yep. Till next time, keep watching TV.